Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So remember back in uh, the summer in August of 2000 or 2001, excuse me, when George W. Bush, the CIA flew a guy down to Crawford, Texas to hand him a memo in person that said bin Laden determined to strike inside the U.S.? Well, apparently we've got a, you know, a modern version of that now. There was a, a memo that was put together. This is according to ABC News. A bulletin was created by security officials at the Department of Homeland Security in early July. It contained warnings that Russia was going to carry out operations to promote, quote, this is from the intelligence community, quote, allegations about the poor mental health of Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. The draft report by the analysts had, quote, high confidence that Russian maligned influence actors would attack Biden with claims of poor mental health, quote, to influence the outcome of the 2020 election. Now, that analysis, this was in, in, in July, July 9th. And that analysis was supposed to go out to the states. And, you know, and basically to the American public as well, uh, I believe. But specifically to the states. And two days before it was released, the DHS Chief of Staff John Gautanis blocked the release with a note asking that the bulletin be held until it could be discussed with Chad Wolf, the guy who claims to be the head of Department of Homeland Security, but according to the law and according to the Inspector General, is not. His title is acting director, but the law says after 60 days, you can't be an acting director. So he has actually no legal status, although he's still there running DHS. And here we are two months later, and this memo has still not been released. So somebody at DHS is like, you know, hey, we tried to warn you that this Russian disinformation is coming. And frankly, it wouldn't surprise me if there's disinformation coming from other countries as well directed against Biden. Like, you know, as I said, as I pointed out, Seth Abramson pointing out that, you know, Saudi Arabia got in on this game, the United Arab Emirates, good buddies with Jared Kushner, the folks who gave Kushner a billion dollars, they got in on this game. And then we've got Bill Barr. Bill Barr just ordered that all electronic surveillance, in other words, wiretaps, you know, checking somebody's computer activity, listening in their phone calls and all that kind of thing, that has to do with foreign intelligence operating in the United States or operating in collaboration with any American politician or political party, that all of that cannot be investigated by the FBI or any other intelligence agency that the Justice Department has oversight over without Bill Barr personally signing off on it. At the same time, Trump just issued a, a new ruling, as it were, instituted a new policy that Congress itself, which is supposed to provide oversight of the intelligence agencies and of, the, frankly, of the executive branch, that Congress will no longer be briefed in person by intelligence analysts so that members of Congress can no longer ask questions. It turns out that Barr has been blocking investigations and prosecutions of Trump allies. He's been removing watchdogs in various government agencies, particularly around the Justice Department. He's been removing oversight officials. And frankly, he and Trump have been pushing this anti-Biden material 
to Republican senators like Ron Johnson that's coming straight out of Russia. This is mind boggling. How corrupt is he? Well, the IRS chief that Donald Trump installed, Charles Rettig, has refused to release Donald Trump's tax returns. He's also not been releasing his own information. Back when he filled out his financial disclosure forms, he said, well, yeah, I'm making $200,000 a year from a rental property in Hawaii. What he neglected to mention was that he owns two Trump condos in Hawaii, and he's renting those out. So he's making 200000 bucks a year at Trump International Waikiki, the guy who runs the Internal Revenue Service, the guy who is saying, no, I'm not going to give you Donald Trump's tax returns. Even to Richie Neal, the, the head of the, of the Ways and Means Committee, where the law specifically says that the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, and this is a law that was passed after Nixon, specifically to deal with people like Nixon. Nixon was the last president who refused to release his taxes. And, and of course, it was because Nixon was taking bribes. And here we are, all over again. Meanwhile, Gallup has been polling Americans, asking, are you worried about layoffs? And are you worried about having your hours cut? Well, last year, 15% of Americans had those worries, which is probably a baseline, right? I mean, that's probably about what you would expect. There's a lot of jobs that are kind of marginal jobs, and there's a lot of folks who kind of know that, yeah, I'm kind of a square peg in a round hole here. I don't know, you know, or, you know, they don't care that much about their jobs. So, you know, it makes sense that 15% of people would say, yeah, there's a chance I'll get laid off or I'll have my hours cut. But now it's 27%. This from the survey that was just done by uh, Gallup. 27% are concerned about being laid off, and 28% are worried that their hours will be cut. 28% also worry that their wages will be cut. Why? Well, pff, there's millions of unemployed people. At its peak, when we locked down back in March, we had 22.5 million people who were officially unemployed as a result of the COVID virus. And about 8 million of those people have gone back to work, although that number looks like it's dropping again. But about 8 million went back to work, which means that, what, you got 12, 13 million who are still unemployed. And those 12 or 13 million are in the job market. They're looking for jobs. They're willing to work cheap. Hey, anything will help. People saying, you know, I might have a master's degree in computer science, but, uh, you know, I'll take a janitor job. Just give me something to do. Give me some income. Especially if you can toss some health insurance in there. And this, of course, tells us we've got a raging pandemic. We've got an economy in the toilet. We've got over 10 million people desperately looking for work. You've got 20 or 30 million people on the edge of eviction right now, depending on whose numbers you're using. Which all explains why Donald Trump is screaming about violence in the streets. And trying to provoke violence in the streets. Because, hey, you know, change the subject is his middle name. Line with us is Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, author of numerous books, his most recent Understanding Socialism. Democracy at Work.info is the website, as well as rdwolf with two Fs.com. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf. And Professor Wolf, I want to get into a conversation with you about kind of post-capitalism or the new normal. But before we do that, real quickly, I'm curious your take on what the Fed you know, what Jerome Powell announced at the Jackson Hole virtual event, where he basically said, we're going to try and keep inflation above 2%. What is this? Why? Can they pull it off? Does it matter? What's going on? Yeah, well, this needs to be unpacked because the language Mr. Powell uses is really much more about mystifying than clarifying. Here's what it means. We are in the depths of a serious depression in which tens of millions of people have lost their job and a good number of them have no prospect of getting it back. Serious, severe unemployment on a scale we have not seen since the Great Depression of the 1930s, number one. Number two, the government of the United States 
is not doing anything about it. That is, we are not doing what we did in the 1930s, which is to create government jobs, to say to the people, if you can't get a job in the private sector, if the capitalist employers either don't want or don't care about what happens to you or want to hire you, the government will. That would be the solution we could and should use right now. But Mr. Powell knows that the government of the United States, surely under the Republicans and Trump, have no intention of doing it. Obviously, they haven't. But if you listen to the Biden Democrats, you don't see much more. $300 billion, which is the number he's thrown around, would not begin to create a public employment program of the sort we need. So what needs to be done isn't being done, isn't even being contemplated. So what's left? Long-term unemployment in the tens of millions? That's going to shake this society to its foundations. So they're desperate. And that's really the important thing here. What are we going to do? And what he said is the following. We're going to keep interest rates virtually zero. We're going to pump more money. I'm talking trillions of dollars into the economy. And if that creates an inflation, a rising prices beyond our previous limit of so-called 2%, well, so be it. Things are so desperate, we're going to have to risk an inflation because the alternative is even worse for us. Another sign of devastation. And let me finish by saying this is unbelievably bad news for the American economy that they're this desperate. But also, if they let an inflation go, and by proclaiming the 2%, he's averaging what will come in the years ahead, which is much more than 2%, because it will be averaged with recent years, which have come in at much below 2%. So what we're seeing is a prognosis from the man in charge that we're going to see prices rising 3, 4, 5, 6, who knows what percentage. And given a country in which most people are having a hard time making ends meet as it is, try to factor in rising prices and you are proposing something that risks savaging the working class of this country. And that President Biden would inherit an economy sort of like the one Jimmy Carter inherited from Nixon and Ford, you know, with all this inflation baked into it. It seems like what you're saying, basically, is there's two ways to reinflate an economy that has crashed. One would be to inject money at the bottom, at the level of the worker, like FDR did. That worked, that right. got us out of the Great Depression. The other way to do it is to try to stimulate the economy the way that Reagan tried to do when there was a slight recession when he came into office, which is pour money into the banks and into the billionaires and hope that some fraction of it trickles down to the bottom. And that Powell is basically saying, we're going to double down on the on the trickle down strategy. We're not going to feed yep. the bottom up. We're going to feed the top down. And it's so ineffective that the side effect of this is going to be massive inflation, which is just going to devastate people on fixed incomes. But that's mostly old people and people on welfare. So who cares about that? Is that a good Absolutely. summary? Yes. And I would only add the part you left out. They've been doing that already. Money is not going into creating jobs, nor will it. It's going into the stock market where there has been a massive inflation. It's just wonderful good news for the few who own significant amounts of shares. It leaves the rest of the economy in a shambles. But that failure is being rationalized by the Fed in order to continue the very policies that produced that failure. Historians will look back on this moment and shake their heads at so much going on in this country, but this action by the Fed, the refusal to face up to the failure of what they've done and the need to intervene directly to give people jobs and incomes, stupefying, really genuinely yeah. stupefying. My question, is this the new normal? It seems to me that the trend that Reaganism put us on of wiping out small and medium-sized businesses by not enforcing the anti-monopoly laws and other policies, wiping out the middle class, that 
what the coronavirus has done is simply accelerate. It's not like there's something new going on here. It has simply accelerated a trend that has been going on for 40 years and that a lot of these low-income jobs and a lot of these small employers, these small companies, small and medium-sized companies that are going out of business and that are losing their, and the people who are losing their jobs are literally never going to get them back. That this is like the end point of Reaganism happening in one year when it would have been maybe another 10 or 20 years. What do you think of that analysis? No, I like it. I think it's correct. I think you already saw it, that you didn't react to the dot-com crisis in 2000 in a way that you could have. You didn't learn anything. You did the same thing on a larger scale against the uh, subprime mortgage crisis in 2008. That didn't work either. So now you're tripling down, if you like, by doing the same thing again. I fear that what you have going on here is a willingness of those at the top in the pursuit of ever more wealth on the fantastic scales of Jeffrey Bezos and all the rest, that the mass of the American people can be reduced to what we used to watch on television in National Geographic programs about poor countries far away. We're going to have enclaves of the rich surrounded by masses of people barely getting by. It's, it's an amazing thing to try to do in any country, but in one that used to celebrate the big middle class and the American dream, I don't think it's politically doable. Yeah, I worked in Bogota, Colombia, in Lima, Peru, in Mexico City, in uh, numerous cities around Eastern Africa and, and Southeast Asia. And one of the things that I saw over and over and over again were slums, basically. They had different names for them that were fenced in. They put these giant concrete fences around them with razor wire on top of them and basically keep the slum dwellers in. You know, they could go in and out on the buses to go to work, you know, to serve the, the wealthy people or even the middle class, but that was it. Do you see that coming to America? Yes. The only question is whether the mass of people who for a while in the 20th century were strong enough to rise up during the Great Depression and to demand to be treated differently and to succeed in that demand, it's unclear to me that that generation or even its children and grandchildren will accept being pushed back. You know, that genie once out of the bottle, it's not so easy to put it back. And I think there are the yeah, political they... struggles that are coming. There you go, that genie of the middle class. Remarkable. Right. Professor Richard Wolf, I always learn something from you. Thank you so much for dropping by today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. And Professor Wolf's work you can find over at democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, and you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. Rich in Cedro Woolley, Washington. Hey, Rich, what's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, this whole subtext to the, the fear in uh, the Trump campaign is actually an economic fear, you know, fear of loss, loss of your home, loss of your job, loss of your wages. And as long as we link this fear to coronavirus, Trump can always come back and say, oh, well, once we have the vaccine, Trumponomics will explode again. But we have to, that mm -hmm. makes it all the more important for us to remind people that Trumponomics went off the cliff back in February before this all started because if we keep talking in a big way and as an earlier caller pointed out it was back in 2019 in september and october when the fed had to start bailing out the overnight repo market the banks basically which means that that's really when it began yeah i heard that but as long as we keep harping on oh well trump screwed up a coronavirus response and that's why the economy you know and that's related to the economy all right that's true that really pushed it right off, you know, into the abyss. But uh, we just got to remind folks, it started back in February. Yeah. You know, our yeah. earlier that this Trumponomics is a failure. And when coronavirus is gone, the Trumponomic crash is still going to be with us. Yeah. And also, I hope I, I am with you. happened in Massachusetts here with the uh, progressive vote. What happened? I mean, the progressives basically, you know, I mean, uh, Ed Markey was, you're talking about the Markey-Kennedy race. Markey was generally yeah, perceived yeah. as being more progressive than Kennedy, and Markey won. How's that a bad thing? Well, that's a good thing, but I hope Joe Biden takes note of that and says, okay, maybe I'd better start moving a little more towards the progressive side. That's I agree, and, I'm, and I think I could probably fairly predict that they are paying attention to that. That was a thunderclap. It's a big deal, so... I'm okay with it. Rich, thanks for the call. Ernest in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Ernest, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. I'm a truck driver, and I drive up and down the East Coast, 
out as far as the very west. And every state that I've been in, I see Trump billboards on the highway. I see Trump signs in the yard. But I have yet to see one Joe Biden sign or billboard everywhere I've been. And if he's raised like $300 million, he needs to put some signs out, put some billboards out. I agree. I agree. I'm guessing that a lot of that has to do with, you know, Trump getting a jump on it because, you know, Biden wasn't officially the nominee of the party until this month or this last month and wasn't a a certainty until a few months ago. You know, Trump has known that he's going to be running for a year now, so maybe they were able to lock him up. I don't know. But Ernest, thanks for the heads up on that. Hopefully, uh, you know, somebody who who could do something about it is listening. MG in Lawton, Oklahoma. Hey, MG, what's up? Here in Oklahoma, like your last caller, I see a lot of people driving around, you know, on their pickups and flags, Trump flags flying and all that kind of stuff. And I think we're too easy on these people. I think we are to be calling them what they are. And hopefully a lot of a lot of people, especially in the I'm 70 years old, and especially my age or close to it, that we ought to be calling these people Trump Nazis. Because our country, my folks, my dad, my uncles, they fought in World War II. And the same stuff that was going on in Germany is going on over here right now. Yeah, my father was an anti-fascist also. You know, he right out of high school volunteered for World War II. War ended while he was in basic training, so he ended up serving in Japan during the occupation forces. But spot on, MG. I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. Thank you for the call. Drew in Portland. Hey, Drew, what's up? Hi, Tom. With so many progressives being successful in the primary, like Ed Markey last night, do you believe that it's possible for Bernie Sanders to be elected as the Speaker of the House, considering anyone can be named the Speaker of the House? Yeah, I think it's possible, but I think it's uh, the possibility is, you know, like less than 1%. I mean, it's technically possible. Breaking my heart. But yeah, no, the, the Speaker of the House is elected by the majority of the members of the House of Representatives. And, you know, typically that's the majority party, although there have been uh, in history a couple of times when you had people from the other party, you know, basically crossing over and, and affecting it. And you're right. Anybody can be elected Speaker of the House. Although if it was not a member of the House who was elected Speaker of the House, I think the position would take on a very different character. But it's going to be Nancy Pelosi. She's done a good job. She's gotten some fabulous legislation passed in the last two years. Mitch McConnell hasn't chosen to pick it up. But, I mean, they pass, you know, the HEROES Act, a $3 trillion act that funds $600 a week going all the way until January, that, that uh, you know, does another met, rent moratorium that, that covers uh, the costs of, uh, you know, upgrading our election infrastructure and making sure that, you know, that, that funds the post office. I mean, a whole lot of really good and basic stuff, straightforward stuff that, that she has gotten passed. And that's just the beginning. I mean, they got they got a massive infrastructure bill passed that, you know, would start fixing the potholes in our roads all over the country that would build our infrastructure back together. Again, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate said, no, we're not going to talk about that. Lindsey Graham, no, we're not going to talk about that. And Tom Tillis and, and, you know, et cetera. No, we're not going to talk about that. John Cornyn, no, not going to talk about that. Cory Gardner, no, not going to talk about that. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So from where I'm sitting, it looks to me like Nancy Pelosi has done a damn good job. And that's why they're going after her so aggressively right now, like you know, with this whole hairdresser thing. And uh, welcome to Tom Hartman University Book Club. And today we're reading from Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. This is Chapter 11. It's titled Corporate Control of Politics, page 170. During the bruising primary election season of 2008, a right-wing group put together a 90-minute hit job on Hillary Clinton and wanted to run it on TV stations in strategic states. Federal Election Commission ruled that the advertisements for the documentary were actually campaign ads and thus fell under the restrictions on campaign spending of the McCain-Feingold Act and thus stopped them from airing. Corporate contributions to campaigns have been repeatedly banned and in various ways since 1907, when Republican President Teddy Roosevelt pushed through the Tillman Act. Citizens United, the right-wing group, sued to the Supreme Court with right-wing hitman and former Reagan Solicitor General Ted Olson, the man who argued Bush's side of Bush v. Gore, as their lead lawyer. This new case, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, presented the best opportunity for the Roberts Court to use its five-vote majority to completely rewrite the face of American politics. 
rolling us back to the pre-1907 era of the robber barons. And if there was one man to do it, it was John Roberts. Although he was handsome with a nice smile and photogenic young children, Roberts was no friend to average working Americans. If anything, he was the most radical judicial activist appointed to the court in more than a century. He'd worked most of his life in the interest of the rich and powerful and was chomping at the bit for a chance to turn more of America over to his friends. As Jeffrey Tubin wrote in The New Yorker, quote, In every major case since he became the nation's 17th Chief Justice, Roberts has sided with the prosecution over the defendant, the state over the condemned, the executive branch over the legislative, and the corporate defendant over the individual plaintiff. Even more than Scalia, who has embodied judicial conservatism during a generation of service on the Supreme Court, Roberts has served the interests and reflected the values of the contemporary Republican Party. End of quote. And the fastest way the modern Republican Party could recover its power over the next decade was to immediately clear away all impediments to unrestrained corporate participation in electoral politics. If a corporation likes a politician, it can ensure that he is elected every time. If it becomes upset with a politician, it can carpet bomb her district and with a few million dollars worth of ads and politically destroy her. In the Citizens United case, the Roberts Court listened to arguments and took briefs and even discussed it among themselves as if they were going to make a decision. But instead of deciding the case on the relatively narrow grounds on which it had originally been argued, whether a single part of a single piece of legislation, in this case McCain-Feingold, was unconstitutional, the court asked for it to be re-argued in September 2009 and asked that the breadth of the arguments be expanded to re-examine the rationales for Congress to have any power to regulate so-called free speech by corporations. In this, they were going along with a request from Theodore B. Olson, who argued Bush v. Gore and would not now not just look at this narrow case, but go back nearly 20 years to re-examine and perhaps overturn their own ruling in the Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, where the court held that it was constitutional for Congress to pass limits on corporate political activities, as well as its decision in 2003 to uphold McCain-Feingold as constitutional. The setup for this 2010 decision came in June of 2007 in the Federal Election Commission versus Wisconsin Right to Life case, in which the Robert Courts ruled that the FCC could not prevent Wisconsin Right to Life from running ads just because it was a corporation. The idea of Congress passing laws that limited corporate free speech was clearly horrifying to both Roberts and Scalia. Scalia went after the 1990 Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce case, in which the then Rehnquist court had ruled that the Michigan Chamber of Commerce was limited in its free speech in a political campaign because it was a corporation. Scalia complained, this Austin was the only pre-McConnell case that this court had ever permitted the government to restrict political speech based on the corporate identity of the speaker. The bottom line for Scalia was, quote, the principle that such advocacy is at the heart of the First Amendment's protection and is indispensable to decision-making in a democracy is no less true because the speech comes from a corporation rather than an individual. The book, Unequal Protection, How Corporations Became People and How You Can Fight Back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are 
and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Joan in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Joan, what's up? Well, I was just wondering, you know, you talked about these corporations, you know, being people, being entitled to person, and I'm wondering if they're subject to the usury laws that the normal citizen is, because I'm limited when I make a sale to somebody to a certain small percentage, and corporations charge 20, 21. If I go over that amount, I can be subject to be arrested, and I wondered how they can be citizens and be in the uh, business of charging large interest rates to everybody. Yeah. Well, what they've done is they've bought legislators and changed the laws. I remember when Richard Nixon was president and we had a nationwide cap at either 10 or 12 percent. You could not charge more than that for interest. It was considered usury, the word you used, Joan, which is kind of an old term at law, but, you know, illegal exploitation of borrowers, basically. And Nixon uh, raised that number. I don't recall to what he raised it or if he even did away with it altogether, but that was kind of the end of low interest rates in the United States for consumers. Now, today, we have low interest rates for billionaires and we have low interest rates for giant corporations. But consumers and small businesses, they're still paying fairly high prices for a lot of things, and particularly if their credit isn't great. And it's all going to depend on the local laws. Joan, you you raise a really important issue that needs a lot more conversation. I don't think probably most of these companies are actually breaking the law. The problem is that they bought legislators, you know, using this uh, change in the rules that the Supreme Court gave us in the 70s. They bought legislators to change the law for them. But Joan, thank you for bringing that up. Patricia in Wooddale, Illinois. Hey, Patricia, what's up? I was just thinking about voting, and I wanted to remind people of a very important and actually crucial reason for us to not only vote for Biden, but the entire Democratic ticket, and that is the Supreme Court. The Republicans pounded this issue in 2016, and they have definitely taken advantage of it. And, you know, we have no idea how long we're going to have Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg, yeah. So I'm, I'm concerned. I'm just very concerned. I mean, there's, there's many reasons, but I think this is a very important one. I agree, Patricia. And, you know, once again, another example of how if Donald Trump gets, gets elected or reelected or selected, as the case may be, that, right. uh, you know, this country is toast. We're just toast. Uh, Patricia, thank you for the call. Lynn in Chicago. Hey, Lynn, what's up? I work for two small business owners. They both got the paycheck protection loans. You know, they used 40% of it on what they were supposed to. They can convert the balance of it to a 1% loan and do whatever they want with it. One just bought a $70,000 truck. Their businesses are back where they are, and I'm not saying everybody's in this situation. There's obviously people who really, really needed this to get back on their feet. I'm paying two parent plus loans. They're on deferment right now, but they're still at 7.65% interest. I don't have the option to convert it into a 1% loan for five years to pay back. You know, are they ever going to do something to help with these college loan interest rates? I'm not saying I want it for free. I'm not about free education. I'm about let's have a 1% or 2% loan so some of us can get ahead of this. 
Yeah, and the Fed has passed out $7 trillion to billionaires and giant corporations. I know. And for about a trillion dollars, they could take over all the student loans in the United States. I think it's maybe a trillion and a half now. Take over all those student loans and convert them to 1% or 0% for that matter. I know. I said to my boss, hey, why don't you convert that to a 1% and give it to me to pay off some of my loans? I mean, the business, I get it. Business need help, too. But a lot of students need some kind of break. Yeah. And the Democrats are talking about this and they have proposed legislation to do this, but it has not gone anywhere in the United States Senate. In fact, they passed legislation to forgive a lot of student loans and reduce Mm -hmm. interest rates on the rest of them. And again, Mitch McConnell is like, won't have anything to do with it. So the key here, Lynn, if you're concerned about your student loans, is to not only make sure that you're registered to vote there in Chicago, but that everybody you know is registered. I'm writing postcards to Wisconsin. I mean, everybody has to be active. Yeah. yeah, this is the only thing we can do. I mean, we just have to do this. Dennis in Bergenfield, New Jersey. Hey, Dennis, what's up? Hey, Tom, I'd like to ask about a supply-side economics or Reaganomics. So I understand you, you you think it's a fraud, which I agree, but my question is, uh, do you believe it causes the economy to go into a uh, recession, you know, crash? Do you think supply-side causes a, a recession? To the extent that it exacerbates the wealth imbalance, that it strips wealth from the working class and lower classes of Americans and transfers that wealth to the very, very rich, which is exactly what we've seen. I mean, you know, massive transfers of wealth, trillions and trillions of dollars since 1980. What that does is it makes the economy more and more progressively more and more top heavy. And so when it falls over, it falls over a lot harder. And when bubbles happen, they happen much more aggressively, as we're seeing right now with the stock market. Did I answer your question, Dennis? Yeah, I think what you're trying to say is the rich, they'll take that money, they'll uh, invest it somewhere, and that'll create an economic bubble. And basically, you know, like what we saw in 2000. Right, because they're they're not actually investing it in productive things. Trillions of dollars have been given to giant corporations by the Trump administration, first with two massive tax cuts, and then with the coronavirus bailout bill. You know, a trillion of that went to big corporations. Did they invest in factories? No. Did they increase pay to their workers? No. Did they make more products? No. What they used that money for was to buy their own stock. By buying their own stock, they're creating demand for their own stock, which drives up the the price of their stock. It's not necessarily driving up the value. It drives up the price of that stock. And and then, uh, of course, those senior executives are compensated based on stock price. So it's a scam. It's just a scam. And and supply-side economics is what set it up. Donald Trump tweeted, if Biden wins, you'll have to learn to speak Chinese. President Donald Trump continued his xenophobic warnings about China on Tuesday, proclaiming that if he loses the election, everyone in the U.S. will have to learn to speak Chinese. Quote, look, China will own the United States if this election is lost by Donald Trump, he told Hugh Hewitt, a right-wing host on the Salem Network, funded by Bible Sales. He goes on to say, quote, if I don't win the election, China will own the United States. You're going to have to learn to speak Chinese. You want to know the truth. End of quote. So what's going on with that? What's going on with TikTok and all this sort of thing? The Open Markets Institute has been, uh, you know, writing about this is all over this. OpenMarketsInstitute.org is its website. And on the line, well, this is the director of the Open Markets Institute, Barry C. Lynn. Barry has written about monopoly and corporate power over at the New America Institute, wrote a great book on monopoly that I read back when I was writing my book on monopoly, which is coming out next week. And Barry, remind me of the title of your book. The name of my book was called Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism, and that came out in 2010. Hey, I actually Marvelous have a new book, book coming out this September, Liberty from All Masters. It's sort of the, my first book since Cornered. That's great. That's great. I look forward to that. I, we're on your list for, uh, for sending the book out. So tell oh, me about the OpenMarketsInstitute.org in general and what you're saying about this charge by uh, Donald Trump that TikTok may represent a security threat in the United States. I have to say, I am concerned about the extent to which China has inserted itself into both governmental and business infrastructure. We can't build a cruise missile now without parts from China. I find that alarming. No, you're absolutely right. This is a huge problem, and it's been a problem for a long time. Actually, the book that I I wrote before Corner was called End of the Line, and it was about sort of the offshoring of key sort of supplies that we rely on here in the United States. You know, I wrote that in 2005. It's like we're going to run. There's going to be a day, I wrote, when we wake up and there's a pandemic. We don't have masks. 
to put on our face, little 10-cent pieces of cloth to put on our face to protect us from a disease. Uh, and sure enough, you know, you run the time out, and we, we have that problem. China is, is, is a problem, although I, it's important to understand that the core of the problem actually lies in the way Americans approach our political economy. You know, it's this sort of allowing for monopolization, allowing for shareholder primacy. If you combine those two things, what you end up with are financiers offshoring the things that you need, either destroying them or offshoring them, which is sometimes the same thing. At Open Markets, what we try to do is sort of distinguish between the Chinese who are playing the game as you would expect your foe to play the game, and the people at home who are, like, helping them play the game. What we can do, actually, besides focusing on the Chinese, is also focusing on the folks here who are helping the Chinese. Yeah. This whole neoliberal experiment that really started in a big way with the Reagan administration and then, you know, Reagan and Bush ultimately negotiating NAFTA and proposing, I think it got followed through toward the end of the Clinton administration or maybe early in Bush, giving, you know, most favored nation or permanent normal trade relations to China. This was sold to us. And I remember this very well back in the very late 80s, but mostly the early 90s, 91, 92, 93, 94, it was sold to us as something that would produce world peace. There were books about this. You know, it, it, was, a, it was a subtext to Francis Fukuyama's, what was it, The End of History and the Last Man or something like that. And it was basically that if we as a nation, the United States, and this is how, of course, the European Union was sold to European countries because they'd had two wars on the European continent. If we are all interdependent with each other for trade, for commerce, then we're less likely to ultimately hurt ourselves by screwing up that relationship by declaring war on somebody. And it makes a lot of sense at a certain level, but it seems to me that even though it was sold as this is a way to have peace in the world, what was really going on was that these giant corporations were using this as a smokescreen to basically find cheaper labor and to find places where they could manufacture things where they didn't have to comply with EPA rules about the environment. And that that consideration of world peace was not even on the radar screen of these giant monopolistic corporations. They don't give a rat's ass about it. And that's where we're at now in the United States. What do you think of that analysis? No, I think you're pretty much dead on. And the thing is, is that there is something to be said about interdependence equaling peace and, and mutual prosperity. I mean, that's, we can cooperate. Cooperating with other nations is better than fighting with them. I mean, that's common sense. The problem, and this is going back to what happened with the WTO, with the Uruguay Round of the GATT, which was passed in, in 1994, it was negotiated by the Clinton administration. The problem is that the Uruguay rounded the gap, basically opened the door, not just to big corporations, but to monopolization. You know, up to that point, we had a very interdependent relationship with the Japanese, with the Europeans. It led to exactly what you're talking about, peace and prosperity. It led to mutual cooperation. That's a good thing. But the Clinton people, they opened the door to monopoly, and then you jump ahead. Just within five or six years, suddenly you find all of these systems are monopolized at the global level. And that means that all of something really important, all the chemicals that we rely on for our drugs, suddenly they're in China. All of a certain kind of semiconductor, it's in Taiwan. All of a certain kind of component for electronics is in Korea. Now, that kind of hyper-specialization, some people say it's efficient. I don't think it is. It's actually very inefficient. But what it also does is it creates a system in which any kind of problem anywhere can lead to massive disruptions in the system. And it also gives to other countries, especially China, leverage over us. That is fantastically dangerous. And that is leading us to either some kind of a bad conflict that's going to be very damaging or to some kind of a compromise that's going to be almost as damaging. China controls the manufacture of the raw materials for 95% of all the pharmaceuticals consumed in the United States. About half of them, I guess, are manufactured in India from those raw materials made in China, and the other half are made in other places, many of them in China itself. Doesn't China have the ability right now to kill literally tens of millions of Americans simply by withholding these chemicals? Absolutely. They can shut off the flow tomorrow. Trump has highlighted this. It yeah. seems like he's not doing anything about it. You'd have to work with Congress to do something about this rather than just rave about it. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the Trump administration is they often actually point their finger at the right thing. You know, when they, you know, they pointed their finger at mm-hmm. this problem of concentration of APIs, these pharmaceutical ingredients in China. That's a big deal. It's a big problem. The Trumpies said, hey, there's a problem there. We're going to do something about it. The problem is they're so incoherent. They're so confused. And they're, and they sort of, they're so sort of into working all by themselves that they have failed to actually do anything about it. We actually need a radically different approach if we're going to do something about this fantastically dangerous situation. I'm absolutely with you. I think that we need to go back to Alexander Hamilton's uh, 1793 letter to Congress. 1791 it was. Anyhow, Barry C. Lynn, he's the director of the Open Markets Institute, openmarketsinstitute.org. Thank you, Barry. Hey, thanks for having me. So I've got a new book out about monopolies. Uh, Ralph Nader wrote in the foreword, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. And I will be doing live free book signings, although you have to get tickets for them. You can get the tickets at TomHartman.com. At 6 o'clock Pacific time on Friday, the 4th of September, we're doing one with Town Hall Seattle. So you can find all the information over at our website. Susan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Susan, what's up? Yeah, Tom, I was just thinking as you were talking about Trump collapsing the economy when he leaves, I understand, if I recall, don't the middle class tax cuts end on December 31st, 2020? So as we enter the new year and a Democratic elected everything, we're going to get blamed for the taxes going up. I believe that you're absolutely right, Susan. I know that the middle class portion of that one and a half trillion dollar tax cut from two years ago, the 83 percent, I think it was, for the top five percent of Americans, that's permanent. But the part for average working Americans, that expired after a couple of years. And I don't recall if it was the end of 2020 or if you have specific information and know that for sure, I'll take your word for it. Because I know it was, you know, within just a few years that it was just, you know, it was just something that they threw in so that they could say to average working people, yeah, we got your back. Don't worry. But it was just a temporary thing. It's a scam, basically. Probably worth looking into. We have a bad I think so. I think so. I think so. Absolutely. Susan, thank you for the call. Kent in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Hey, Kent, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? 2008, they bailed out to the tune of $29 trillion. That's T as in Tom. James Falkerson, University of Missouri, Kansas City, wrote a paper in uh, December 2011. Working paper 698, $29 trillion, a detailed look at the Fed's bailout by funding, facility, and recipient. Right. And this was the result, by the way, of legislation that Bernie Sanders co-authored, along with, I believe, Rand Paul, that required an audit of the Fed coming out of that event. You know, it was a one-year audit, but yeah, we, we found out that. And not only were they bailing out U.S. banks, they were bailing out U.S. billionaires individually. They were bailing out foreign banks. They were bailing out foreign hedge funds. They were bailing out foreign billionaires. They were bailing out corporations left and right. You know, I was saying at the time in 2009 and 2010 that we would, we would be in a Great Depression if the Fed wasn't supporting things. They are continuing to support things. What's your point, Kent? Oh, a few weeks ago, July 2nd, Giannis uh, Varoufakis gave a really good interview, and he told how this led into what we're going through now, and basically he's just pointing out we are basically at war with oligarchs. My thought that I want to leave you with is that the stimulus package that is being held up in Congress, I think the Republicans are just going to keep kicking the can down the road. Uh, mail-in ballots. And I'm looking at, you know, in the next few months, you're going to see a lot of people no longer having a mailing address. And it's just one part of the shotgun theory that they're using. They're just, they'll do anything to disrupt this election. Yeah, they will burn this country down if they think that it's going to help them get reelected. Joyce in Bentonville, Illinois. Hey, Joyce, or Bensonville. Hey, Joyce, what's up? (laughs) Near O'Hare Airport, Chicago. Ah, uh, I, okay. I just I just wanted to say that um, the party that they're building is not until 2024. And Cornell West has mm. vehemently said 
we must get the gangster out of the White House to vote Biden. I just I just wanted to tell you that it's not like a yeah. anti-Biden yes. movement right now at all. It's just going forward against corporate power. That's all. Okay. That's all. Well, thank you for for that, Joyce. Uh, you know, like I said, I need to learn more about it and 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 figure okay. it out. Appreciate the call. I mentioned before the last break about Kimberly Guilfoyle and Donald Trump Jr. Um, this is bizarre. First of all, uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle is Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend. She's paid $180,000 a year to be his girlfriend, basically. And Laura Trump, Eric Trump's wife, is paid $180,000 a year because she's his wife. They're being paid with donations coming into the Republican Party, but, you know, this is what's, what's so. And uh, Don, uh, Donald Jr. and Kimberly uh, visited, they went to a fundraiser for, uh, excuse me, she's a fundraiser. They went on vacation to France. Now, this was, this was a few months ago. Uh, they went to vacation, uh, on vacation to France and um, posting photos on social media and all this sort of thing. It turns out that uh, you and I, taxpayers, paid $31,104 for their first class air travel. We paid uh, $23,000 for their hotel rooms for two nights, July 11th and 12th, and uh, split between the Hotel de Sears and the Prince de Gaulle's. $23,000 for Don and Kimberly, two nights in a hotel. $23,000 you and I paid for. An additional $10,000 you and I spent to rent them a, an armored car in Paris. The uh, it's mind-boggling, and we don't know how many Secret Service agents traveled with a pair. We don't know what uh, how much they spent on food because that doesn't get reported. Just the hotels and airfare get reported. And what's so bizarre is that as Trump and Guilfoyle are doing this little world trip, uh, they are complaining about nepotism and privilege in the Biden family. Hunter Biden, oh my God, Hunter Biden got a job because his daddy was VP. Probably true. But so did Don. So did Don Jr. So did Eric. So did Ivanka. So did Jared. I mean, it, this is pretty amazing. This is, <laughs> this is what Kimberly Guilfoyle said. We've got this problem with China because Biden and his policies and the way he allows his son to profit off his office. And she's getting $15,000 a month from the Republican Party. Or, you know, through the, through the Trump campaign. It's, it's coming by a Brad Parscale's private firm. Uh, one White House advisor said odds of Guilfoyle having gotten her job if she hadn't been dating Trump Jr. were, quote, less than zero if that's possible. Bingo. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Jeff in Arlington, Virginia. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm calling with a possible solution for the impasse on the new stimulus bill. Uh, that's assuming mm -hmm. that Trump's uh, executive order is not implemented. Trump's executive order is, does not suspend any student loan. It does not suspend any eviction. It does not add $400 to anybody's paycheck. I mean, it's just <laughs> it's a joke. It's well, a stunt. Yeah, specifically, uh, I wanted to focus on that extra uh, money for the unemployed. The Democrats want 600 a week. The Republicans want 200 a week. And that's one of the sticking mm -hmm. points that's been holding the bill up. So I had an idea for a solution to that, which is to give people the $600 a week right up front, $10,000 in one shot which is the equivalent of four months of those $600 a week payments. And that would accomplish three things. First, with one $10,000 check, people can pay off bills, pay off debts, and breathe a bit easier. Number two, it kills the incentive to not return to work. 
and then they can make a level-headed decision if they want to risk their health and go back to work, etc. And, and then finally, it kills the Republican argument against the payments. So, Jeff, have you done the math on 10,000 times, you know, what, 140 million people in the workforce? I didn't, no. Or actually, it would be 10,000 times, uh, what, 40 million people who are drawing unemployment. But it would be in the budget. If they're ready to pay $600 a week to all those people for four months, then they would be budgeted. It sounds scary. How much did how much did we just pay the last four months when we paid six hundred dollars a week? It's the same amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was a little over a trillion, trillion and a half. So maybe it's this is what Republicans are objecting to is, oh, my God, you know, you're going to run up the debt. And, uh, you know, we always are supposed to scream about the debt. (laughs) But, yeah, I, I think, you know, giving people 10 grand, they would be a huge shot if Donald Trump wants to intervene in the negotiations, this is what he should propose. Because if you gave everybody 10 grand right now and said, okay, you're good until the end of the year, Mm -hmm. a lot of people are going to spend that money right up front and they're going to be buying things that would stimulate the economy. And theoretically, that would help Trump tremendously. I mean, you know, whether in reality, I don't know. But uh, Jeff, interesting point. Thank you. Mark in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hey, Tom, I was just wondering about, you know, whether or not it's even constitutionally legal for Steve Mnuchin to determine that Social Security would go into a general trust fund. I mean, Social Security Act. No, it's not. So he would not legally be able to do that. And I don't think that. And that's why Trump's executive order does not include that. And I I just a little bit of a spin on the whole, you know, Ronald Reagan's 10 most terrifying words. I think 10 most terrifying words from the new Biden administration would be, I'm the new president, and I'm looking forward, not back. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's time to stop giving former presidents a pass. Mark, thank you for the call. And it's always Democratic presidents giving Republican criminal presidents a pass. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky, what's up? You know, Trump's a crook. You know, everything he says is a lie. Uh, he's going to do all this for you. He does absolutely nothing. Just like we were supposed to get a big tax break after the election. Right. Uh, he proposed before the election. Nothing came to Well, if you were a billionaire, you did get a big tax break, Corky. Yeah, but the little people. This entire thing in the fourth item was the payroll tax cuts, extending unemployment benefits, preventing evictions, extending student loan relief and payroll tax cuts. Those are the four things that Trump emailed to me saying, this is what I did for you. And every single one is a lie. He asked HUD to look into whether they can prevent evictions. He asked the Department of Education to look into student loan relief, the unemployment benefits. He's taking money out of FEMA and offering it to the states, but they have to match it with 25%. And even if they don't have to match it, he's taking money out of FEMA. And it's hurricane season. And there's wild, and it's wildfire season. And he's going to exhaust FEMA. And it'll be exhausted in two to three weeks. There's not the money there. And the payroll tax cuts, again, a, a scam. It's not actually cutting your payroll taxes. He's stopping collecting them for a few months. But then at the end of that time, you owe all that money. You're going to have to write a check for a couple thousand bucks or whatever, you know, whatever that percentage of your pay would be to the federal government. He's lying through his teeth again. It's mind boggling. Eric in Minneapolis. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Hey, I was just calling. I think people are reading too much into this Massachusetts race where they're thinking that Lackey won because he is more progressive. And I believe that he won because people are just have Kennedy fatigue. You know, it, it, you know, it could be that Lackey was doing a great job, had no reason to replace him. And uh, people, you know, the Kennedys, maybe people are just tired of thinking that Kennedy is going to become the next senator. Yeah, it's, it's possible. And one of the things that could influence that is, you know, we saw what happened when when Bush Jr. became president and the way that he totally screwed up our country, more than doubled the national debt, got us in two wars that, that were interminable and continue to be uh, lied about, you know, all kinds of things, including torture and mass and, and murder and things like that. Um, and, 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 you know, so the idea and, and now you've got Trump talking about his daughter, Ivanka, being the next president, the first woman president in America and, and the, the party, you know, wanting to make Don Jr. their nominee. And I, I just 
you know, I think maybe dynasty fatigue is setting in. But, but frankly, I think really, I don't think it's that people didn't vote for Joe Kennedy because Joe Kennedy was really beloved in Massachusetts. He, was a, he had a seat that he would have been able to sit in for the rest of his life in all probability. He was very, very popular. He had to give up that seat to run against Markey, so he had to believe that he could beat Markey. Markey's 74. You know, maybe Kennedy thought this was the way he was going to push him into retirement. I don't know. I don't know what happened on the inside, but I think strategically it was a huge mistake on Joe Kennedy's part. And, you know, but it is what it is. Bob in Riverside, Illinois. Hey, Bob, what's up? Uh, Hi. Um, Thank you. Um, I just really quickly wanted to make a suggestion as far as how to lower the unemployment rates since they're going up because of COVID. Maybe make an offer, do a buyout for people that are aged 60 to 67. Some of them are just waiting right now to reach their magic retirement age number so they can collect their Social Security. Buy them out. Offer them an early retirement. Um, that would, yeah. I think, get a lot of people I propose out of this, Bob, in a chap. Yeah, I proposed this in a chapter in a book I wrote called uh, uh, Rebooting the American Dream back in 2012. Um, You know, Uh it's the book that Bernie sent around to all 99 other senators. And my point was that if we lower the retirement age, the Social Security retirement age to 55, then what two things would happen. Number one, it would clear a lot of people out of the labor market. About half those people between 55 and 65 would probably just decide to retire. And that would would. would increase... (laughs) Exactly. And and what that would do is that would bring young people into the labor market. It would give them an opportunity to get in. And it would also tighten up the labor market, which would drive wages up. By driving wages up, you're driving up collection of the Social Security tax. So more people would be paying more on the Social Security tax, and it would be basically self-funding. It wouldn't hurt Social Security. It would help Social Security. So I am am totally with you, Bob, and I think that that's that's a very, very good idea. And at this point right now, because Joe Biden and God, I hope he wins, um, he's already talking about bringing Medicare down to age 60 instead of 65. So a person like me, who's right. 50, who is unemployed right now because of everything going on, and I'm close to it, I'm almost ready to retire, I'm just not without Social Security at the moment, I would jump on the offer. That's one of those camel's nose under the tent things. You know, if you can lower the Medicare eligibility age down to 50, then what you're going to find is a whole bunch of people under 65 are suddenly going to be being exposed to Medicare and figuring out, hey, this is a damn good program and it's cheap. Maybe everybody should have this. Bob, thank you for the call. Brilliant. And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Tell your friends how to find good progressive media. Share the story of our program and other programs that you watch or listen to with them. Be good to yourself and those people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.